Hi, I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg, and we're the co-founders of The Skim. Welcome to our podcast, Skimmed from the Couch. On every episode, we invite smart, inspiring, successful women to chat candidly about what it takes to get to the top, and then what it's like when you actually get there. So this is a podcast about the real stuff, the crappy days, the bad advice, the first big career win, and the people who are there for the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. We started the skim from a couch, and we have only one rule on this one, no BS. Please join us in welcoming Margaret Brennan to the couch. Margaret is the moderator of Face the Nation and a senior correspondent on CBS, but she didn't always plan to be a journalist. Once upon a time, Margaret thought she wanted to be a diplomat. She studied foreign affairs in the Middle East. She even learned Arabic. But after interning at CNN in college, she decided journalism was the path for her. Since then, she's covered business news for CNBC and Bloomberg TV. And she covered everything from nuclear negotiations with Iran to U.S. tensions with North Korea for CBS. These days, her spot on Face the Nation makes her the only woman on TV leading a major Sunday political affairs show on her own right now. But now it's turned... Our turn to flip the script and ask her the questions. Margaret, welcome to the couch. Thank you for having me. Uh, We are big fans and thrilled to have you join us. So first things first, at The Skim, we are kicking off our No Excuses campaign because there are no excuses not to get out and vote. Can you give us your 30-second pitch, why should everyone vote? Well, I think everyone has a voice if they choose to use it and Right now, being informed is something you can't afford not to be because there is so much um, political change that may be happening uh, in the next few years. And I think just because you may get fed up with Washington doesn't mean you should give up on Washington uh, and that by going to the ballot box, it is truly, really the only way to hold leaders to account to say, I like what you're doing or I don't like what you're doing. And these days, what I think is fascinating about these upcoming congressional races is that it is going to be so narrow. It is going to be so tight. You're going to hear so much about this wave, a blue wave coming. That is not at all what we are seeing in our polling data. We are seeing little blips, little movements, really tight races. And it's going to come down to what happens, particularly in some key suburban districts. And this year, more than ever, really, women are going to be impacting what the trends will be. It's coming down to shifts we are seeing in how women vote and who they are voting for and their willingness to put themselves out there and on the ballot as well. Record-breaking numbers at the gubernatorial level, at the House level, and at the Senate level. So really, I I don't think you want to choose not to be part of that. I think in this moment, uh, there is obviously for, you know, the past year or 18 months, there's been so much talk about this era of fake news. You are fake news. Repeatedly, the media resorts to personal attacks without any content other than to incite anger. It's called fake news. Fake news media. Going into the midterms with all of the things that you laid out um, being at stake, uh, making it more important than ever, some would argue, to make sure that you get out there and vote. How do you view your role as a journalist in this news cycle? I would say there is tremendous responsibility that I feel as a journalist, even more so in this news cycle right now. Um, 
I think, and we spent a lot of time for our show weighing what our responsibility is, whether we are being fair and representing, um, if there are, quote unquote, both sides, uh, the many sides to an issue and to put it in context. Because I think so much of the way we talk about issues, people have already decided what they think before they even hear the facts and the details. And too often they're self-selecting. And too often they're going for people who sound like what they already have convinced themselves the outcome is, rather than actually going after journalism, which is supposed to be, in our role, helping to keep the electorate informed, present you with facts so that you can actually uh, make an ultimate decision yourself. And for me, this era of fake news, the first of all, that's a horrible term. And it is one that gets used not to refer to whether something is factually correct or incorrect, but often just if it's not something that you like hearing or it doesn't go your way. Um, but I think there is more and more responsibility on the shoulder of journalists these days to be unimpeachable in the the what you're reporting. You need to be so certain that what you have is so fully sourced because really all you have is your integrity as a journalist and people need to be able to trust. Um, and these days there is a real deficit of that. And uh, that's something that you have to earn and hold on to time and after time with every story you report. What I found so interesting about your background was the focus on diplomacy. Obviously, that was, you know, it sounds like that was in college and, and you went down uh, a different path. But how yeah. have you used that background and that way of thinking to apply into your reporting? Well, you know, I when I went to the University of Virginia, um, I was always interested in moments of change in the world. And my mom always said she let me watch the news too much growing up. Because I was always asking about <laughs> <laughs> what was happening in these, you know, different conflict zones or asking why all the time. Um, and I think she made me aware of what was happening outside my home, you know, what was happening in the world in a way that was really good in terms of thinking of uh, not just my safe place, but sort of what what was happening and why and questioning what makes things um, tumultuous and periods of change in certain places and not in others. For me, I loved the, you know, the romanticism of reading about these moments in time and kind of got into foreign affairs and international relations. And uh, I decided that's what I was going to study when I went to school. So I studied foreign affairs and Middle East studies. I figured I should have a region of expertise and coordinate my language with it, which is why I ended up taking Arabic. And the more I studied, the more I loved what I was learning about and debating, but everyone figures this out at some point. What you learn in the classroom and the way you apply it in real life are often two different things. And for me, when I studied abroad in Jordan for a semester, I studied Arabic, it was so eye-opening and it so changed my point of view. Everyone I fully support studying abroad or getting your kids to study abroad or just taking that semester or that longer trip because there's something incredibly humbling about it to struggle to speak another language, to really try to orient yourself in a culture that's completely different than yours and to take what you're learning in the classroom and see how it actually applies in real life. All those things changed me. And I came back saying, I don't know if I want to 
work within an institution or within a bureaucracy as a diplomat. I didn't really even know what being a diplomat meant, to be honest with you. Like, I thought it involved living in New York and doing something at the UN. Um, <laughs> and like, does that it not? Cool. <laughs> I mean, it can, but, you yeah. know. Um, and when I went back to UVA, I started looking at, you know, the Foreign Service exam and some of the things that it would require of me, and, and I remember this one question, and it pre-screened you to see, like, are you made for this? And it said, would you be able to stand up and defend a position forcefully that you personally disagreed with, but it was the policy that you had to defend because it was that of your, you know, your government? And that's something that professional diplomats have to do all the time, no matter who's the president no matter who, which political party's in power, no matter what that policy is. And then they find movement around the edges. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting, but I don't think I could do that. I, I think, I, think so I would interesting personally have a problem with that. Well, what the but heck I find do I that do? so interesting, Margaret, because obviously, you know, in your role as a journalist and, and specifically on the show that, that you host now, um, you're very careful not to not to let your opinion shine through and, and not to necessarily um, uh, editorialize anything. So I find that fascinating that being worrying about kind of having to support something you didn't believe in or agree with prevented you from going down that path. How do you kind of reconcile that with the career that you did choose? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think I grew up asking a lot of questions and being kind of skeptical about things, which I think is something that I've carried through. My dad uh, worked on Wall Street all my life, and he was a banker, a financial analyst, and would constantly play devil's advocate, no matter what it was. My mom sometimes is just like, he's doing that to get your goat. He does it to me now. Um <laughs> And we'd have these really animated conversations over dinner. My dad was constantly challenging me on why I thought something, back it up, explain it, carry me through the logic. It was sort of, it wasn't the opinion per se. It was carry me through the thought process here. Tell me how you're getting there. Can you defend that position? Can you explain it and think it all the way through? And for me... That's kind of how I think about going into my job as a journalist is, well, all right, I'm not going to argue with you on the face of these two positions you have, but what's the next policy here? What's the next step? How does that actually impact people? Explain this to me. Explain that to me. And why is it totally inconsistent with the thing you said before? I mean, that's almost <laughs> the, the very basis of what the value of, of inquiry is supposed to be there. So that's how I see it. I don't see it as my job being to um, be an activist. Uh, I don't see my job as having to be, um, in, a, in a partisan way, parsing things. I think you need to be able to call balls and strikes and not have your audience question where you're standing. That said, the audience is constantly questioning where we're standing these days. It is so hard not to. Um, because people are so used to picking sides. We get so much pressure. And I have to tell you, it's incredible since I've stepped into this job. You get messages all the time on Twitter, on email, everything. Like, why didn't you go after him on this? Why did you go after him on this? This means you're that. This means you're that. And when you get hit from both sides, it's when you are told time and again, okay, that's what it, the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, we talk about that all the time. Do you watch your competitors? 
Um, I do occasionally. I need to be I was actually just talking to my producer, Mary Hager, uh, about that. I need to do it more often. Um, I tend to record our show, go home, not watch it for like a day and a half, and then watch it. Because I can't watch myself right off the bat without being hyper, hyper critical. Um, I need to take a day and a half off to sort of get the perspective on, oh, I liked the way we did this. I didn't like the way we did that. I tend not to flip around and watch them back to back with the other shows. I do watch the big interviews that my competitors get. Often they're on before me because we're on at 1030 Eastern. So I do get to see in real time some of the other shows and the interviews that they do in that moment. I don't, just don't watch start to finish. So that's interesting that you watch it in real time. Does that stress you out? <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes it's also useful um, to say, oh, well, you know, there was just a bit of news there. I got to follow up on that. Or they didn't get anywhere with that line of questioning. Um, it, it's 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 educational in some ways. Um, is it stressful? It sometimes can be. When someone does a really good job, you're like, oh, wow, I got to step it up today. Um, but for me, the way I'm watching is what what did I learn there? Or what was new that wasn't followed up with there? Um and that's that's how I try to approach interviews. I don't approach it from this like, gotcha, let me get the key quote in terms of, you know, characterizing you. It's how do I learn something more? And I've been able to do that with some of the national security interviews with, you know, Ambassador Bolton or Ambassador Nikki Haley. We've made news with them that has helped to drive not only an entire news cycle, but it impacted policy. You know, it was on our air that Ambassador Bolton uh, talked about the Libya model for North Korea. Because of the mistakes of 25 years of past administrations. It's, but is it's, it a requirement that Kim Jong-un agree to give away those weapons before uh, you give any kind of concession? I think that's right. I think we're looking at the Libya model of 2003-2004. We're also looking at what North Korea itself has committed to previously. And then, you know, weeks later, we saw the North Koreans threaten to call off all talks. We had Nikki Haley on our show, uh, the ambassador at the U.N., unveil Russia sanctions that within 24 hours the White House had totally tried to roll back and then fobbed off as a mistake by her when she was very clear, very detailed, and very direct on our air. Absolutely. So you will see that Russian uh, sanctions will be coming down. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin will be announcing those on Monday if he hasn't already. And I think that kind of, for me, that's value. It's We're contributing to a conversation and contributing to maybe what's going on policy-wise in terms of debate. It's not just a gotcha quote. You have um, a huge job, obviously. I mean, Face the Nation is iconic. Um, do you ever, and your job as a journalist is obviously to ask blunt and tough questions. Do you ever get nervous? Like, do, is is there someone that you went into and you're like, I I have a pit in my stomach about how I'm going to interview this person or how do I, yeah. like, does that not happen anymore? Are you past that? No, it still happens. Um it happens um, particularly with those people where you're sort of like, oh, this is going to be one of those interviews where they're just going to spin, 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 spin. And I'm under a time crunch because often this is this is live. And so, you know, the audience isn't seeing it, but there's a, 
there's someone on the floor with a big time clock in front of me telling me five minutes, four minutes, three minutes. And you're like, that, that is stressful. That is frustrating. Um, and that stresses me out ahead of time. People who are just talking points, people. Um, I think the times that I'm naturally sort of more comfortable for me walking into this job, I had a background in national security and I had a background having covered wall street. So I lucked out that a lot of the big stories of the moment happened to be in those two wheelhouses. Um, I've covered Washington and Washington politics, but I haven't done that for 30 years. Um, like some other people here have, I think the fact that I come at it with a different perspective and ability to analyze from those other perspectives, um, where I can see the financial angle, or I can see the national security compli complications and implications, is good for me. But I'm less, um, you know, ready to just roll with it. I gotta, I over prepare probably, <laughs> particularly on Saturdays. Um, I'm cramming for an exam, and you know, this is a huge job, like you said, and walking into it was incredibly intimidating and incredible resp responsibility at the same time that I'm having my first child. And those two Congratulations, things... Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> those two things together. Uh, I would be totally lying to you if I didn't say I went, oh my God, how am I going to do both? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to ask, actually, well, congratulations. And I think in the beginning you said something about your mom letting you watch maybe too much news <laughs> growing up. As you think about being a parent and, and uh, uh, is that something that you think about? Like, do you want your kids to, to watch you on air? Do you think that you'll bring them up in an environment where news is around all the time? Um, as two news junkies who were yeah. raised with parents that did that, it's it's interesting thinking about it at this stage. I know. Um, I think I, I think so. I think it's hard to turn that off because I'm a news junkie. You know, my husband doesn't work in this space, but he loves, you know, following politics and policymaking and national security. So we talk about these things. Um, and I, I think it's good. I also think for raising a kid here in Washington, D.C., D.C. kids are this like other breed. A producer <laughs> friend of mine here I was talking to his seven-year-old who was asking me what I thought about Jeff Sessions. And I was like, what, oh what seven-year-old knows the name of the attorney general <laughs> unless you live in D.C.? Like, that's pretty amazing. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's kind of in the water here. <laughs> you can't avoid it. So we're going to take a quick break to talk to you about what is going on at Skim HQ. We are very excited to be kicking off a huge campaign. It is called No Excuses, as in there are no excuses not to get informed and go vote. This is like our Super Bowl. In the 2016 election, we registered 110,000 people to vote. That was great. But this year, we want to go even bigger by getting 100,000 people to actually show up at the polls and cast their votes. So many millennials don't like the way the country is being run, but only 20% of millennials turned out to vote in the last midterms. We can do better than that. Your vote is your voice, and we want to help you speak up about the issues you care about. So head to theskim.com slash no excuses for nonpartisan information on the issues. We can also help you register too. That's theskim.com slash no excuses. Get informed and get registered and then go vote. So now let's get back to our conversation with Margaret Brennan. 
I want to talk about when you got this job. Because this is, as you know, we've said now twice, and icon- it's an institution, the show. and uh, No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> and uh, there have been icons that have come before you for this role. Walk us through the moment that you got this job. Wow. Um, so I remember when I got the call to say, would you be interested in the job? And I said... Uh, are you kidding? Of course, absolutely, but I'm not going to get it. Um, and I kind of took it from there. I'll, I'll, I'll try out for it. That's great. Like it's an honor to be considered at all. Um, and I don't know what to ascribe that to, but I just sort of downplayed it to myself. I, I went on the you know sort of test run auditions, and we had some really good shows. The times I filled in. Um, the news was sort of complying. There were a lot of big breaking news items. And I had some in-depth interviews where on the fly, the executive producer was like, you're really hitting something here in an interview. Like, I feel like you're getting this, you know, you're pulling something out of the interviewee. I like that. And we changed the show a few times that I was in the chair um, on, on the fly because of how the interviews went. And so I thought I was doing a good job, but I still didn't think it was my job. Um, And I very much wanted it, but I had uh, such regard for the institution. Thinking This is a 63-year institution. I mean, when I tuned in as a viewer at home or when I sat in on a panel, I was like, wow, these – these people know exactly what they're talking about. They've got this story nailed down inside and out. This is going to be the final word on whatever issue of the week it was. Um, and so the idea of stepping into that chair was intimidating, but exciting. Uh, and then when I got the call, I was just very, very thankful. And I said, thank you so much for trusting me with this responsibility and this opportunity. I will work incredibly difficult. Through incredibly difficult things and work really hard to live up to the standards because I feel that there is a standard that all of us have to continue to reach with this. Um, and so I, it was a lot of responsibility, as tremendously what I felt. Did you have a I moment felt. when you hung up the phone? Did you have a moment of like looking in the mirror, being like, oh my God? I, <laughs> or, or, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I was at the gym. Oh my god! <laughs> on my day off, and I was like trying to do like a um, what do you call it? Uh, like a plank, and my phone because I'm a news junkie. I can't do anything without my phone nearby, and it started ringing, and it was a number from out in LA, and I'm like, I'm gonna keep doing this. I'm not gonna answer the phone, and I'm like, what am I doing? Of course I'm gonna answer the phone. I got yeah. up and I answered it. I just was kind of looking around like no one else has any idea what just happened to me. <laughs> like, oh my god! What do I call? do? <laughs> Who was your um, first call? I, um, my first call, I called my husband. He didn't answer. And then I <laughs> called my agent <laughs> um, and said, oh, my God, did you know this? Um, and and we took it from there. You talked about um, not being able to watch yourself. You need, like, a, a day and a half or else you're hypercritical. Do you think that that's always been something that like you know talent either has or doesn't or you know journalists who are on tv have or doesn't or do you think that the social media after effect has has contributed to making a critical job even more hypercritical 
Oh, I think, A, I'm, I'm hypercritical of myself. That's always been the case. Um, I'm my own worst critic. And I do that on the fly, and I do that after the fact, and I'm always kicking myself, why didn't I ask this, or I should have asked it that way, or I, I missed an opportunity here. I do that anyway. I think that's always been the case with me. Um, from I was My parents talk about I was just like a hyper-serious little kid, um, and I was... Uh, they they put me in Irish step dancing classes when I was five years old, and I was a competitive Irish step dancer, which sounds really dorky. That's amazing. But... No, that's amazing. <laughs> like, like river dance kind of thing? Yes, but before river dance, so, like, no one really knew. <laughs> like, all the little <laughs> Irish girls in my town in Connecticut did it, but um, river dance kind of made it mainstream and cool. Um, but, yeah, basically, like, every Sunday going up and down, certainly the east coast of the U.S., you can find Irish step dancing competitions. That's amazing. Um, jigs and reels and all the rest. But it, it helped me learn to compete at a very young age. You know, being five and six and being put on a stage to just do your – you know, set piece, your performance and get off and then you get judged on it. Literally, you get numbered, um, you know, sort of report cards and then you get trophies or you don't. And my dad still tells the story of the first time I competed and I didn't win and how horrible he felt explaining to me because I was like, Dad, where do I get my trophy? And he was like, sweetheart, you didn't place this time. And I was like, (laughs) I don't understand. Like, what do you mean? What didn't what didn't they like? And um, it, it's something that I know a lot of people would say that's a lot of pressure to put on a little kid. My parents were the farthest thing from stage parents. It was that addiction I got to, I can do this and I can do this well and I can do it better next time, um, that I kind of got hooked on even as a shy little girl. Um, and so that helped me with the individual performance. On the social media part of it, God, that's awful. I mean, you get <laughs> instant feedback and hot takes on you. Um, you know, if you're not looking for them. Um, And so it amplifies it. And the thing that irritates me is when people don't watch the whole interview and they just see the one little clip and you're like, well, did you watch the seven other minutes? Yeah. When you got this job, and this is a question we've been asking more and more people uh, as they come on, did you you negotiate? Uh, Yes, but, you know, I'm fortunate that I work with an agent who – does that uh, for me, but it is something that we negotiated around, yes. Have you ever had to negotiate this, your salary yourself? Um, the first time that ever happened, I was, yes, I was, you know, I don't know, maybe like two years out of school, and I realized in the job I was in that, you know, I was getting paid hourly. I didn't have, I had like maybe basic, but not full health care. I was living in Manhattan with roommates and I just realized that I was doing the work of somebody who was, you know, a totally different job title and getting paid the entry level rate. And my dad was the one who was like, you need to go talk to, you know, the anchor you're working with about this. And it took a lot of, you know, talking myself up to go in and say, you know, this is hard for me to continue to do this. And he he was shocked that you know, this so often happens when you're straight out of school and you're going to continue yeah. to say yes and work hard and do all the things you should be doing, but it doesn't mean they're going to pay you for it until you ask for it. 
Where and, is like that fine line? Because I, you know, I've read interviews that you've done, and, and you, the advice you give is very similar to the advice that that we've given and, and did ourselves, which is like, you know, you volunteer for assignments at work. Like, there's no job yeah. that's too big or too small. Like, you know, make yourself um, valuable. How, where where do you think that line, like, especially if you're it's in your first job, do you do you start saying wait, like? this is actually like I'm going to fight for myself because, you know, it can certainly come off the wrong way in your very yeah. first job of saying like, I'm sorry, like this is not the competitive rate. And they're like, you're lucky to be employed. Yeah. So, how you know, there's this fine line. Where do you think um, that line, you know, where do you think that line is? How do you know? How do you navigate that? It's hard. It's a really good question. I mean, I think it, I think part of and I stand by all of that. Like, I just raise your hand, learn as much as you can. I was viewing this first job as sort of like paid, like paid graduate school. Like, instead of me paying to go to graduate school, I was going to learn as much as I could on the job. And that's how I was sort of justifying being underpaid um, and not having health care and all these things. And then it got to the point where I was like running out of cash and working all the time. And, you know, those things aren't matching up. And... Um, it was talking to my parents and my dad who was like, you need to do this, you know, and, and having someone who was in my corner to sort of coach me through it is what kind of made me say, I, I can't keep denying that. Um, but I was also impatient in some ways to continue to progress and learn. And I sort of had this idea like, okay, well, if they don't like me here, maybe they'll like me better across the street. And that's one of the dangerous things, too, is I think sometimes you and this is maybe not just true in TV, but in other places like they don't love you till you're about to leave. Right. And then all of a sudden they're like, wait, what do you mean? Like, here's all the money you're asking for and here's the opportunity you're asking for and the title yeah. and all the Why didn't you ask earlier? Um, I knew I had to have that conversation before I, I went out the door. Um, I think women in particular often. The younger women that I talk to here starting out or in other news organizations often have the, well, I don't want to bring it up and have the difficult conversation, so I'm just going to go apply for a job elsewhere. And I don't think that's always the best thing either. Um, you know, it's an it's an interesting time for women in, in many workplaces, in many industries. Um, and, you know, most notably of late, a lot of headlines have been about your employer. And mm -hmm. uh, CEO and President Les Moonves and accusations towards him and and other workplace cultures at, at, at CBS specifically, you know, as we said in our intro, like you are the only woman on TV leading a major Sunday political affairs show on your own today. That is historic in its in its own right, in its own moment, and well deserved. Do you feel unique pressure being a trailblazer for women in this role at this moment, given everything else happening? Um, it's something that I, I think about and I haven't been able to fully digest for myself yet to put myself in the story. I will say I feel and have felt as I've progressed in my career, more and more responsibility to help share and coach younger women who are coming up because I didn't really have a female mentor coming through this. And a lot of, I had great male mentors, but a lot of these things that I um, have come to realize that in my adult life, 
where, oh, well, I was taken advantage of on that. Or, you know, this is a really great opportunity here. Or, you know, this person's a, sh- a rising star and she needs to be recognized for it. I feel a responsibility to cheer on younger women. Um, and maybe I think that is a generational shift. I think coming up, there was this idea that there is limited space for women and therefore those who've made it need to be feel threatened by those who are coming up behind them. I don't think it's that way anymore. Um, I think for me, the thing that I don't know what the heck, and I will be very honest with you, I am so terrified of um, having this baby that we're so excited to have, but terrified as to how am I going to juggle it all? How am I going to do it all? And the way that I've realized this needs to happen is just asking people who've been through it themselves how they've done it. And so I think I feel more of a responsibility to sort of share what I'm learning in the hopes that people will trans people smarter than me who've been through it will transfer to me the advice on how to get it all done. Um, I did have some people say to me, well, you know, the choices you make even on your maternity leave could be precedent setting for other people. Ugh, it's that's so hard. How did you how'd you respond to that? Because that feels like statue and we've talked about this with other guests and, you know, as CEOs, we, we set the companies and we work with our chief people officer to set the company's family leave. And it feels like no matter what you do, it's setting someone up to like yeah. create a precedent. This one's really hard. Um, you know, I have you know, that there's what is legally allowed you. Right. Then there's what's practical. Then there's what's specific to your job and to your position and your family. And, um, you know, my employer, CBS, has been very understanding about me saying, I kind of got to see how I feel like I really have, I have no mm-hmm. idea, you know, is, is six weeks enough? Is eight weeks enough? Is three months enough? I, I have to go through this to give you a, an honest answer of what I need to be. Yeah. Um, to, before I can figure out how to do these t- these major things all at once. Um, I've had so much different advice from so many different people, definitely had judgmental people say, you can't take that you know small amount off. But I will say, I feel, and I've used the word responsibility a lot here, but it's because it's how I feel with the job that I have a responsibility to this institution, to this audience, to the amazing team that works on it, that I need to be back here and I need to be fighting for us and this show and this baby um, while I'm also trying to, to, you know, bring this little one into the world. So I've, you know, decided that I'm going to try to take about two months off. Um, for my maternity leave, but I've left it open to say, I got to see what happens here. You know, God willing, everything goes okay health-wise for me and for my child. Um, but wow, it's, it's, I have so much awe for women, period, and it is only growing. Like, we, I was saying to my husband the other day, I'm like, I have to form some sort of, like, corporation to, like, produce a household now like how did you do this like yeah can you I was like can you hire producers to like do your baby registry like there's like all this stuff you gotta learn and uh how you balance it all and gosh um I don't think until you go through this really that you appreciate I know I didn't 
I kind of brush, oh, I can handle that. Like you just suck it up and you, you power through. And I'm realizing more and more, no, there are certain things you can't just power through. They overpower you. Um, and so it, we'll see what happens here. Um, but I'm feeling a lot of responsibility to come back and be in full fighting form in November um, for what's going to be only the beginning, right? These are congressional races, and then we open up to 2020. I you know, said to my assistant the other day, like, let's figure out how I can ship breast milk from, <laughs> like, Iowa. Right. How am I going to yes. do that? <laughs> well, keep us posted on that. Um, <laughs> And congratulations on everything. We're very excited for you. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.